If we look at past trends and our physiology and our behavior and our culture and project those forward, we're going to look like, act like, and have behaviors similar to what are described in these cases of close encounters. Welcome back. I am here with Dr. Michael Masters. Dr. Masters, welcome. Thank you, Sean. It's a pleasure to be here. Appreciate you having me on. Now, do you prefer Dr. Masters or can I just call you Michael? Yeah, I'm not a big fan of titles. Let's just keep it informal. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining the podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to speak with you. Now, why don't you tell me about yourself, a little bit about your background and kind of what you do day to day and how you got into the work that you've gotten into? Yeah, well, I was born in Oroville, Ohio, which is the home of Smucker's Jelly, for anyone that's familiar with that part of the country. Or eastern the jelly. or western? Eastern or western? Um, kind of northeast toward Cleveland. It's about an hour south of Cleveland, Akron, Canton area, okay. between Akron okay. and, and Worcester. But yeah, that's kind of our claim to fame. And Bobby Knight was from there too, I guess. Famous basketball player. Oh, a very calm, very calm demeanor. Very calm, collected man. Yeah, known for his uh, calm demeanor and his patience. And his affinity for chairs, apparently. Yes, yes. I think he invented them, actually. So yeah, I was born there. I won't give the date, but you could probably guess based on the grayness of my beard. Yeah, I went to school as an undergrad at Ohio University for physics and astronomy at first, then switched to anthropology later on for reasons we'll get into later. Mm-hmm. And went to the Ohio State University. It might be the only time I've ever emphasized the the there. Maybe just to piss people off. I don't know. But yeah, I went there for my master's and PhD, graduated in 2009, got a job at Montana Tech. It's a top-ranked science and engineering university, the Pacific Northwest in Butte, Montana. And yeah, been here ever since, working through the ranks, publishing papers, teaching classes of various types within the the various subfields of anthropology. Yeah, my main area of research is in hominin cranial facial anatomy, the evolution of various cranial facial components, how that relates to brain structures, particularly ocular structures, the eye. In a functional sense, with regard to vision, visual defects like juvenile onset myopia, stigmatism, retinal detachments, things like that. And yeah, more recently, it's turned to the question of UFOs, which seems to be a hot topic these days. And there seems to be an accelerating curve, in fact, related to interest in this. I almost feel like there's a date certain somewhere, and I think Mm -hmm. it feels like the government is scrambling to get to that date certain, but that's... (laughs) Again, that's based on, I mean, it's based on what other people have said, but it's based, you know, no, there's no. Well, if, you, if you've been paying attention on. for a while, yeah, that seems to be the case. I feel the exact same way that they're not controlling this narrative. They wish they were. They're scrambling to get out in front of it. So it seems like they are in control or have some say in what's going on. But no, this isn't their doing. I think if it was up to them, they'd probably sit on this for another 70 years if they could. Yeah, it's also very nicely coincides with the uh, passage of the National Security Act in 1947, but that that's neither here nor there. And we'll talk about all this stuff in the next episode. But before we delve into the most intriguing aspect of what you just mentioned, which is the UFO portion of it. Oh, come on, man. The eyes are interesting, too. Well, I was going to ask you what your dissertation is. You got to throw my real, about. my real, my real research under the bus like that. Come on, no, you're well, right. I was going to ask like, you your dissertation. What's your dissertation all? Well, about? no, curious. buddy, I was telling a buddy of mine. I was going to a conference, and I was like, "Yeah, for UFO stuff again." He's like, "Yeah, that's the only thing people care about anymore." <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's fun to hear you say that, which is true. You know, I've I've definitely had a lot of citations, and but it's very esoteric research. I get cited and. Had papers about like rebuilding cranial facial structures after car accidents and forensic reconstructions for crime scenes and stuff. So yeah, nobody's reading that. So yeah, to answer your question, the UFO thing has definitely become sort of the the main focus of late. And you know, I'm happy to say I, I won a research and scholarship award from the dean of my university with a lot of you know really interesting research being done by a number of very 
highly accredited PhDs and researchers throughout our side of campus. And really, it was just for the UFO stuff. So it's nice to see that my administration appreciates this research as much as, as other stuff I've done. But yeah, no, I think it, it's important. It's growing in importance. And I think it's only going to continue to snowball and move faster down the proverbial mountain as it does so. But yeah, my origins with this are, are pretty deep going back to when I was eight or nine years old. And my old man, I learned pretty recently, just before this event I'm about to describe, had a, a UFO encounter of his own prior to me being born, where he was out on a veterinary call with a, a colleague who happened to be riding along with them, which was fortuitous because that makes two witnesses, which ranks higher in J. Allen Hynek's reliability scale. She talked about in the UFO experience, a really good book. It's hard to get, but definitely worth getting for people that are interested in the long history of this and especially Project Blue Book, which he was the head of for a long time, or at least heavily involved with. So yeah, I learned about his UFO encounter. And then like most sensible people of the time, he bought Whitley Strieber's book, Communion. And I remember very vividly seeing that up on the, the living room shelf with the sort of archetypal gray alien, and then having this vision of an early hominin, a modern human, and then what's now known as a gray alien form, and just wondering if, if we could be related. I mean, just even looking across those in my mind's eye, it was clear that we share all of the same, what I would eventually known as synapomorphies, homologous characteristics that more or less define at least modern humans, but in addition to bipedalism, much of the hominin lineage and, and primates as well, going back to the, the early stages of the primate order. Mammals, tetrapods, I mean, go back as far as you want. There seems to be a route to our physical characteristics, our morphology that mirrors that of other living primates and especially in relation to our hominin ancestors. So it just sort of, I guess, projected that forward with my primitive nine-year-old mind and thought, oh, they're, they're probably us from the future coming back through time to study their own past. And it's been kind of a lifelong pursuit since then. Going back to your father's UFO incident, can you say more about that? At least what he relayed to you? Yeah, for sure. And because I carried a lifelong interest in this, obviously I couldn't trust what I remembered hearing when he told some people at our house when I was like eight or nine years old. So I interviewed him about it when I was in college. I think I was probably a sophomore, and took a lot of notes about what he and this other fella observed. And it took place in um, a very rural part of Northeast Ohio. He primarily worked as I was growing up with Amish people, and he would go in the darkness of Amish country. You know, they don't use lights. They have little, I guess, kinetic energy-powered lights on their buggies and stuff, but they don't mm -hmm. have power, you know? So it's a very dark part of the country. And him and his colleague were cresting this hill, and in the distance, a couple hundred meters probably, was this very bright light. And he said it was just hovering over this open pasture, probably mutilating cows or whatever. And then was this in Ohio sudden, or was it yeah, like yeah, where? Yeah, Amish okay. country in Northeast Ohio. So rolling hills. Okay. You know, people think of Ohio as flat, but there's a lot of hilly areas as well. The Northwest part, super flat. But where I grew up, especially where I went to college in Southeast Ohio, it was very hilly. So they crested a hill his bright orbs over there, uh, pretty large. He described it. I remember one thing that stood out when I was young is that it wasn't emanating light. It just kind of glowed brightly, which also made mm -hmm. it different than a normal light, you know, like a street lamp or something, which again, you wouldn't see in the heart of Amish country anyway. So then all of a sudden it just darted straight toward them. They slammed on the brakes. It sat right out in front of them, you know, in, in front of the truck, maybe a hundred meters off the ground went back over to where it was, and then shot straight up into the sky at tremendous speed. So it was, you know, definitely something anomalous, very consistent with other UFO encounters, and certainly stuck out in my eight-year-old brain, because it wasn't something I was familiar with prior to that. Did he mention what color it was, and also any incidents of missing time associated with it? No, I mean, that wasn't something I thought to ask back then, because I didn't know enough about the phenomenon. I really didn't start diving deep into UFOs until I began writing my first book about identified flying objects back in 2012 and came out in 2019. 
So I was mostly interested in that biological connection, that, that ancestral uh, connection that we all seemingly share with the primate order and with the hominin lineage specifically. But my sense is that that would have come up at some point innately. I don't know if it would. He he's, was and continues to be a very uh, religious person who thought this was the work of the devil. So it was like dismissed for a long time. And that was reiterated as I was interviewing. This is to lead us away from God and, you know, Satan doing his work here on this planet and all those talking points of people who have that same ideology. But yeah, no, I think it was just that I, I couldn't tell you for sure because it wasn't my experience, but what was relayed to me was what I just described. And is there any reason he felt that way? And the reason I ask is sometimes, for instance, if you look at the book, Skinwalkers at the Pentagon, there is an orb incident, or sometimes orbs are associated with this feeling of terror that is unattributable to anything or any external stimulus in the in the environment that would actually terrify other than the presence of the orb. So was yeah. it related to that, or was it just cultural programming that led him to feel that way? Well, again, I can't say, I can't speak for him in that regard. But yeah, I mean, there is that aspect of it where people are naturally you know afraid of something because of the ontological shock that it carries and it challenges mm -hmm. their worldviews things not supposed to exist but here i'm staring at it i can speak to a ufo encounter i finally had last year in the summer of 2022 and sort of the opposite of that there's also ufo apathy where people are sitting there looking at this thing and they're like that doesn't make sense in my frame of reference for anything i've experienced in the past but i'm not afraid of it i'm actually yeah. quite comfortable and i'll go back to sleep because it's not a big deal which seemingly is them interacting with our minds and controlling our behavior in that respect but the ufos that i saw i saw five of them at the same time very clearly ufos they were sitting on top spread out across the the east ridge here which uh, is the Continental Divide, actually. This separates the, the Pacific from the Gulf of Mexico water. But there's five of them sitting perfectly still, probably 100 meters above this bridge line. Bright lights, clearly not stars. They were too close to be stars. Perfectly stationary. Then one by one, they shot off toward the southeast at tens of thousands of miles an hour. I wouldn't even know how fast it was. And my brain convinced me it was Starlink. That, that's not what Starlink does. It's not what it looks right. like. And eventually I looked it's up a bunch distinct. of videos. Very distinct, yeah. clear patterns. I, I looked at videos from the ground, from different angles, from the actual shuttle that releases them. But, you know, it was kind of that UFO apathy thing. Like, I wasn't scared at all. I've been studying this my whole life. I'm like, what? Sweet. I finally saw a damn UFO, you know, after all this time. But my brain still convinced me it was something prosaic when it clearly was not. So I didn't get that excitement you know, right at that moment, like, oh, yeah, I saw UFOs about you know, two or three months later when I came to that realization. But yeah, a lot of people have very different responses to this. And I, I think a lot of it has to do with how comfortable they are with reality, or how willing they are to challenge our conventional notions of reality in that moment, or later, if they do reflect on it. And I mean, you talk to anybody in the UFO field, I was unique in the sense that I never did have an encounter. But a lot of people have one that's undeniable and they go head first down that rabbit hole of the ufo subject because you know it sticks with you it's like well wait what was that that was real what is this real thing how does it fit in with my preconceived notions of reality and the the worldview that i've constructed since i was very young in this incident you had in the summer when in the summer was it like what month i think it was june it's pretty warm and it's not warm a lot in southeast <laughs> montana but yeah, I was walking up the hill by my house. I live in a, a pretty steep canyon, so I like to walk up the hill to, to see more stars and see the horizon. And as soon as I got up there, turned around, boom, there they were. How, roughly how far were they? And were they just lights or were they? It was like midnight, so I couldn't make out any craft. And they weren't close enough to see the shape. I would say probably two to three miles away so relatively yeah. close but also far enough that it was just a, a light very very bright lights what color did you get a sense white they okay. were very bright white lights i didn't see any color change or anything just not a part of the natural landscape i remember 
talking about this on a podcast too. And, and someone who lives just outside of the Canyon was like, man, I look at that night sky every night for 50 years and I never saw nothing. <laughs> and here you live out here for two years and you see five UFOs at the same time. He's all pissed about it. It's kind of funny. Do you get a sense though that they, whatever the phenomena is, right? I'm keeping an open mind to it, that they wanted you to see them? I mean, yeah, that's always the question. They clearly have the ability not to be seen. And I, I'm out there talking about it. I'm out there talking about how much I never have seen one prior to that night. And yeah, I don't know. Maybe it was a little gift for helping to, to spread the good word about our, our friends in the skies, potentially our friends from the future. I joined the club that night for sure. Popped my UFO cherry, so to speak, but it seems kind of narcissistic to think of it like, wow, they came here just for me. They were probably doing something, probably getting water for fuel. I don't know, but it was cool. It was definitely cool to see and, and to finally have one of those moments of awareness. Like I'd always known this was real. I don't need to see it myself. You can look at the witness testimony of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people and know this is real, but mm -hmm. it still definitely levels up the situation when you do see one yourself. There's no doubt about that. There's a good reason why I'm probing on this and I'll explain why when I get to it. Was the pun intended there? Oh, wow. No, that uh, was that was, was probably even worse because that reveals something disturbing about my own subconscious. <laughs> <laughs> but good catch. Good catch. Okay, so go back to your state of mind. You kind of alluded that to the, the, the fact that you were, I shouldn't say fact, but that you were excited. But you also kind of said something about you were very calm. Which was it? Oh, no, I was excited after they shot off into the distance. Oh, that was the transition. Okay. So I, you know, I had a little yeah. buzz on. I'd probably had three whiskeys throughout the night and was holding my fourth in my hand as I walked up to look at the stars. But no, I was watching. I'm just like, well, those aren't normally there. That's very strange. And I was calm in that moment. And then once mm -hmm. they shot off, I went upstairs and shook my wife awake. Like, I saw Starlink. I saw Starlink. It's crazy. It's not anything like I thought it was. I didn't see Starlink, you know. But that's when it turned to excitement because of what I saw was clearly unusual and clearly not Starlink. But I was excited about what I saw, even though I didn't understand the anomalous aspects of it in that moment. So the reason I ask is... In August of the same year, it's either the 23rd or 26th. I remember it because I was like, did that just happen? So I went out back my house and it was almost like an orange orb shot over my house, but it happened so fast. I'd estimate a second and a half mm. and it, you know, it kind of shot up over, I live, there's a hill right behind my house that is next to a park it shot up and then kind of just went and disappeared in the in the background but it happened so fast and i wasn't scared i was just it was just almost this extreme calm right but afterwards i'm like did i even see that because it mm -hmm. happened so fast and the sky lit up so i thought about every possible alternative right and you know like i was in the military i've seen flares it's not a flare you know, I see aircraft routinely because there's an airport, Buchanan Airport that's nearby. So I see aircraft routinely. It was not an aircraft given how fast yeah, it moved. Not Again, a satellite I, either because they don't move that fast in the sky. They don't move that fast that and, they don't and they don't fly that low. And it yeah. definitely was not a drone because I couldn't hear anything. There was no sound. But then again, it happened so fast. I was just like, maybe the sky just lit up for a second. So I, I haven't gotten any signs as kind of black and white as other people have if anything they're always ambiguous if if they even are those things so yeah anyway i'm still waiting but that's why i'm asking all these questions because the same feeling yeah. where you're just kind of like this feeling right. of calm you're not afraid at all it's weird no i mean some people are some people are just, there's a whole spectrum of things that happen especially you know people that get taken up and actually anally probed and go through this medical exam like those people tend to be disturbed, but but based on statistical results of the Dr. Edgar Mitchell Free study, they 
demonstrated that 85% of people who interact with human-looking beings, which is the majority, the, the most commonly described type, they have a benign or positive experience. Only 5% actually have a negative experience where they're screaming and they're terrified. And even those people with repeated contact start In to normalize yeah. the oddities of that experience. So yeah, we have this sort of stereotype which may have been intentional, part of the PSYOP campaign that we're now learning was very much a part of our reality over the last 70 to 90 years, where these aliens are, are depicted as menacing, scary, harmful creatures. But that's not been the case at all. I'm, I'm giving a talk in Cincinnati at the International MUFON Symposium about this question. The whole symposium is about friend versus foe. You know, what what are they? And there's obviously negative encounters, but those are the vast minority across cases. Most are actually positive. People want them to come back. They form lifelong friendships with these same individuals who, interestingly, don't age over the course of their lifetime, which indicates that they are time travelers, that they have the ability to dip in and out of this person's lifetime doing a longitudinal study. But to them, it might be a couple of days or a week. So they wouldn't age throughout that time more than a couple of days or a week. But throughout that time, obviously, the, the research subject goes through a lifetime of ontological growth and developments in essence in late life. So, yeah, I mean, everybody's experience is different, but we should look at averages, too, and not just focus on stereotypes that have been perpetuated for decades. Okay, now I kind of took us in a completely different direction. Let's talk about your research. So how did you develop this hypothesis that the phenomena is created or run, or however you want to describe it, by future humans? Well, I mean, I mentioned that early life experience at around age nine when I saw Strieber's book. And that, that was the beginning of it. I mean, that's what mm -hmm. set me on this path. It's why I chose physics and astronomy and then eventually biological anthropology. Because I saw a niche, I guess, or a niche was shown to me, depending on how you look at it in the context of free will in the block universe, where it became more important for me as an individual, as part of this larger thing, to investigate the physical form of the beans inside and not just the craft. There's a lot of other people working on that. So yeah, it kind of shifted gears and went down that road and I have no regrets. I mean, outside of you know, being able to research one of the most interesting questions of our time related to the UFO phenomenon, I got to do uh, paleoanthropological digs in South Africa at a three and a half million year Australopithecus africanus site for two summers, do a field season at Chepino Ajonzac, 150,000-year-old Neanderthal site in southern France, and do all kinds of cool digs, Native American prehistoric digs here in the U.S. So primate research in Costa Rica, it's it's been, you know, really a great field to be a part of, not just for the travel opportunities, but because we're talking about studying ourselves, studying humans in a cultural, linguistic prehistoric and biological context. So it really is a fascinating field. And, and I'm glad that I went down that path. And obviously that there's so much overlap, intentional or uh, latent with regard to what's going on with UFOs. Now, looking backward, if you're looking at this hypothesis that they are future humans, do you have a sense that the phenomena has gone back and deliberately cause these shifts from our primate ancestors through DNA manipulation or otherwise? No, I, I get the sense that they, we evolved naturally. It's hard to say because there's no evidence to suggest that. And until yeah, this is just is... speculation, hundred percent speculation. And I know you have to be very careful what you say. And well, I mean, any scientist, should and and is if they're doing their job right but i don't see any evidence of that i don't think that they are doing that at least not in our past leading up to now from now on who knows but they seemingly are doing it more for them than us because there is a, a massive focus on gametes of sperm and egg extraction of reproduction of hybridization which sounds you know crazy to say but there's 
countless cases that describe this happening. But it almost seems like they're doing something. I talk about this a lot in my second book, The Extra Tempestra Model, and a little bit in the first one, but more and so. And all in the this second. stuff will be, all these books will be linked below. So, oh, cool. A lot of what I do and how I came to this conclusion, or at least this idea that I'm advocating for, is that if we look at past trends and our physiology and our behavior and our culture and project those forward, we're going mm -hmm. to look like act like and have behaviors similar to what are described in these cases of close encounters. And the main one for me as a hominin evolutionary anatomist is the cranial facial changes, an increase in brain size, an expansion of our brains mediolaterally, especially in the parietal lobes and to some extent in the frontal lobes, and a decrease in our mid and lower facial anatomy. We see a reduction and retraction in our, our mid and lower face. And my main thesis stands here question I never did answer about my PhD was looking at those relationships. How does it affect the eye in a functional sense who is stuck between an increasing and anteriorly moving brain moving out over top of the eyes? And in fact, we're the only mammal that has that configuration where a brain sits right on top of the eyes. And as the face moves back and shrinks below it, how does that affect the eye? And it's very likely one of the main causes of myopia, where you have the eye, which is enlarged, stuck within this circumscribed area of the bony orbit with fat and ocular tissues, muscles, rectus muscles around it, which projects outward from the eye. And it becomes elongated to the point where light focuses in front of the retina where it's supposed to. Then also looked at human variation and obviously just these long-term evolutionary trends, collecting data at museums and various places in Africa, Europe, and others. But if we project these same craniofacial trends forward, we're likely to have even bigger, rounder heads, smaller faces, hairlessness, but still maintain the pentadactyly, the tetrapod, four-limbed characteristics. Most importantly, bipedalism, the fact that we walk upright on two legs. That's the trait that defines the hominin lineage, is that we're the only habitually bipedal mammal. We're the only ones that do it all the time, but especially among primates, chimps will kind of walk upright when they carry food or try to look aggressive, but we're the only ones that do it full time. And the fact that these beings, these aliens, these future humans, these extra tempestrials, as I call them, are also always described in such terms indicates that they are us. And, and if we look at those specific traits, project those forward, then yeah, morphologically, we, we would expect that. But to circle back to the, the gametes thing, the reproductive aspects, we we're facing a crisis in fertility right now, and we have been. We see a 60% decrease in sperm counts in males in the Western world, 50% across the rest of the world when averaged out with less developed countries and other places outside the West. We're increasing our use of in vitro fertilization, which while good for the individual, lets people who genetically shouldn't be able to reproduce, to reproduce and put more of those mm -hmm. genes into the population. We see genetic homogenization on a global scale, where we have the whole island of Earth becoming one interbreeding incestuous population, essentially, because of air travel and, and things like that. So if we look at these trends, you know, I try not to speculate about what's going to happen in between now and then. But if we just look at these trends, their intense focus on gamete extraction and hybridization likely has more to do with fixing a problem in our evolutionary future than it does mm -hmm. with them doing something to us to try to shape us to become them in some way. I think that there's a lot of risks inherent in that. There's a lot that can go wrong and, and maybe they do try and something did go wrong and they're trying to fix those problems. There's a lot of issues with CRISPR and, and genetic modification if it impacts our heritable characteristics uh, related to those gametes. So yeah, no, I think it's more about them helping themselves than them doing something to us and some sort of ancient aliens, you know, making the human super race or something like that. Now, you talked about lower facial features retracting and having done that from, you know, during the course of evolution. What are the mechanisms by which that happens? Like, why would those features be selected or why would evolution select for those particular features like smaller nose, smaller mouth? Your oh, yeah, it doesn't. It's it's kind of a <laughs> so esoteric, but the spandrels of San Marco, uh, a paper 
by evolutionary biologist, Stephen Jay Gould wrote the paper in like the 70s or 80s. It's a byproduct of other changes, selection happening to favor certain characteristics because they are beneficial. And then you have these areas in between the spandrels that hold up that church. It's a metaphor for what's happening there that are affected that don't have anything to do with that. And we actually have problems associated with those. It's called an evolutionary trade-off. And a couple related, we can kind of think of it as the what we call the runaway brain, where we have such intense selection for increased neural capacity and obviously the things that come with that cognition and solving problems and advancing our culture that as the brain grows, it's the first to do so. So the brain and eye are growing intensely. And it pushes everything and, down, basically, to make room for the brain. Yeah, basically. So you have the, yeah. the the base of the cranium. You have the anterior cranial base, the middle, and then the posterior. And those have been flexing where they come toward each other. And as the brain moves out over the eyes, it leaves less space and less time during growth and development for the face to grow out and down. And in my first book, I talk about this in the context of what we see with all animals and even automobiles. It's just a, a function of the morphology of these things. I talk about, you know, if you tried to put one of those truck trailers on top of a Corvette, it wouldn't work because of the way those are. But you shrink back the face of that Corvette into a truck and you can plop that on there. I also give an example with domesticated dogs. You have uh, like a Collie or Doberman Pinscher with a very long, elongated snout and a very low sloping forehead switch that out to like a Rottweiler, a Pug, a Chihuahua, they have a retracted face and a big bulbous forehead on top, but you don't mm -hmm. see a forehead in Collies and Rottweilers. So it's it's been happening throughout evolutionary history. We see it across modern human populations as an aspect of human variation. And it's just an aspect of the basic bow plan of how these features can fit together. So it's not, you know, that we're selecting for smaller faces. In fact, it's problematic for us. We lose our chewing musculature. But importantly, one of the reasons we could, what relaxed the selective pressure to maintain that was tool use. We started cooking our food. We started processing our food with stone tools and allowed the face to get out of the way of an expanding neurocranium. But we do suffer from problems like choking. We're the only mammal that can choke on food because we created this 90 degree turn in that anatomy back there. We have sleep apnea, we have dental crowding, all kinds of problems with our, our dentition because they, they haven't gotten small enough fast enough to accommodate that. So we have to rip teeth out in early adolescence. So yeah, we can't think of everything in evolutionary biology as how did that thing benefit us? A lot of things are just the result, the, the evolutionary trade-off of something that was beneficial in a related capacity. Now, what about the eyes? So, again, I'm just going to throw this out there. I have no idea if this is going to border on your research, but one would think that as the human species evolved, there would be a need for a wider frequency range or, or given vision a wider, be it to be able to see a wider range of frequencies, particularly as you become more of a spacefaring civilization. So in other words, being able to see in the infrared, maybe being able to see, you know, above into ultraviolet frequencies, et cetera. Is there any selective pressure toward that? Or is that, am I just kind of talking out of school here? No, not yet. And it's possible that there could be. And I first started talking about this, people would say, oh, yeah, this makes sense. You know, it's why their eyes are big and their pupils are big as we live in space or we live underground and they have to, you know, develop to those environments, which is possible. Again, I steered clear of all of that because that is speculation. We don't know what's right. going to happen between now and the future. So I talked about long-term trends. And because the eye and the brain are connected evolutionarily and throughout growth and development with what's called a pleiotropic gene relationship, where the same gene or sets of genes controls both organs, which we consider to be separate, but the eye and brain are basically the same thing. The eye grows the out of the forebrain. Yeah, the eye grows out of what is the brain during early fetal ontogeny. So if the brain continues to increase in size, the eye is likely to increase in size too. So we just expect because of that pleiotropic gene relationship and ontological growth and development relationship that they would both increase in size. So I don't think it has anything to do with where we live in space, underground, anything like that. 
And additionally, we're really buffered from natural selection. Like it does still occur. A lot of it's related to our culture and our environment that we create. And it has been since 3 million years ago. That's why we talk about biocultural evolution in human history, as opposed to just regular old evolution, like most animals experience. So we would have to understand how we would start being selected, how those traits would start to be selected for in the future. We would have to bring back the fact that some people die, some people don't. And and one of the reasons we can't even have nearsighted people in such a a huge number, it's upwards of 80 to 90% in many Southeast Asian countries, almost everybody there is nearsighted, which I argued in my thesis and other places, that that's related to their existing craniofacial anatomy. And they tend to have the biggest roundest heads and the most retracted smallest faces. So the fact that we also see the highest rates of myopia in those populations, I think is a very important correlation we shouldn't dismiss. But the reason that can exist is because we can treat it. We can slap contacts in our eyes. I'm wearing some right now. I have negative five diopters of myopia. I'm very myopic myself. So the fact that we can do that, we can put glasses on now, contacts, now we have LASIK surgery. So it it allows us to still survive and reproduce and pass on those bad eye genes. Another argument that's made, and I talk about this in a 2012 paper in the journal Medical Hypotheses, is what we were doing is sending off to war the people with good vision. Meanwhile, people with bad vision were staying home, banging all their wives and making babies that grew up with bad vision. So we're selecting against the trait that we should be selecting for were historically selecting for in populations where everyone had to have good vision. So there's a lot at play there. And it it sort of demonstrates the nuances of trying to think of how these things work in the context of modern day environmental variants and selective pressures, because it's all gotten messed up, just changed. I don't know if messed up's the right words that implies valence, but it's definitely changed in relation to the way it has been throughout the very long history of hominids. Well, you also mentioned something that's very intriguing when you talked about the lack of relative, let's call it relative lack of selective pressure. Cause I think at the top end of some elements of society, like in the sciences and things like that, there will be an intense selective pressure for larger craniums, things like that, because of the level of analytics that you need to study a lot of those topics, you know, kind of talk about advanced physics and things like that. But in terms of just basic survival selective pressures, there aren't a lot anymore. Mm -hmm. And I don't know where I saw this study, but I I literally saw a paper in the last week or so, or maybe the last week, the last month or so, there was some methodology they used to intuit what IQs were in an Italian population by observing, I don't know, but either genetic material or things like that from different time periods going back to the Roman Republic, which I I guess carbon-14 dating, I guess you can probably still analyze stuff. That Yeah, carbon-14 will take you back about 70,000 years, so it's still very good for those types of so, studies. So, so there was some way that they intuited that information, and I'd have to look at it, but I think they showed that in late antiquity or kind of just prior to like kind of late Roman Republic that they had kind of the highest IQs. And then you had, you know, the, the extreme wealth of the empire is when IQs started declining. Then of course they declined to the point where you had the dark ages and then they started, you know, coming back up. And now we're in the period of time when they're starting to decline again. And again, this is just looking at, modern day Italy and kind of stretching back. So it's a relatively, I can't, I guess you can't say it's a homogenous population because I'm sure there's tons of mixing and things like that, but yeah, definitely. Especially because of the conquest of the Romans and slavery and whatnot. Yeah. And you're mixing and things like that, but also just creating that relative plenty during that period, you're just going to have this lack of selective pressure. So as a result, it's built into that thesis of kind of this rise and fall of empires, and it plays into that. But anyway, I didn't mean to get us off. Yeah, that's interesting. I'd be curious how they quantified IQ from genetics, though. That seems like a a tricky thing to do. 
And they were looking at Z scores. They were just doing it in the context of Z scores, right? So, which I guess is the same thing as it's been. Yeah, that's just an aspect of the hypothesis testing. But it means they had a large enough sample to do, to use Z scores. So they probably had hundreds or thousands of of people. It's just, it's hard. I mean, it's hard to even gauge IQ in modern living populations based on, you know, test taking and things like that. So I just, yeah, I was curious how they could even deduce that at all from genetics, but I'm I'm sure sure they figured it out. I can find it. I can probably find it. Yeah, I'd love to see that. We also have a kind of a knee jerk reaction to anything related to genes and IQ just because of the eugenics movement and, and phrenology and all these ways that, you know, science was bastardized and pseudoscience, I should say, and applied to try to legitimize slavery and segregation and things. Yeah. Well, like that. my, my alma mater is the, is, I think Terman is the, the big kind of guy on IQ. So that's all that's controversial, right? There's, there's yeah, for arguments sure. about, you know, cultural advantages and, and things yeah, like that. institutionalized racism and all kinds of things. There's a lot that, that factors into it. It doesn't mean we shouldn't study it or talk about it, but it's right. just so like many We just have factors. to be very careful. We just have to be very careful. Well, I mean, yeah, but, you sure. know, so the comment you made about, you know, certain populations having higher, you know, bigger craniums and stuff like that is correlated with certain populations having, if you just take IQ scores and take the caveat that they may be no, it's There's not actually the even brain size, brain shape are, are not correlated with intelligence in any way between the sexes, between populations, oh, among populations. What they found is what's more important is the density of the neurons. So how tightly okay. packed your dendrites, axons and, and all of your neurons are within the skull. And that's what, you know, we've always assumed. And, and we show this with, you know, like big brain cartoon characters that take over the world and stuff. But right. no, there's there's been no correlation between brain size and intelligence. But, you know, they, they opened up Einstein's brain. He donated it to try to figure out why he was so damn smart. And that's what they found with his and other geniuses because they've dissected their brains too, is they take these little chunks. And within those, they find that they have a much higher density of neurons. So it actually may be better to have a smaller brain with a tighter fitting brain in it with more of those neural connections as opposed to a bigger brain where they have farther to travel in order to make those connections. Now, do you think it's heritable or environmental or a mixture of both? Or, I mean, it could be epigenetic, right? That's the environment. Yeah. And yeah, once you throw in epigenetics, it's a little bit of everything. I mean, it's just kind of circle back to Lamarck with epigenetics. But yeah, it's environment. They're even showing an environmental trauma for your ancestors can manifest itself in the descendants gene. So, yeah, I mean, certainly there's some heritable component of intelligence and there's a huge nurture side to that too. You take, you know, someone born into the dumbest family in the world and and raise them to be a genius with the right level of education. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely both. And yeah, the, the epigenetics is a factor as well, for sure. All right. So going back to the future humans, hypothesis what other aspects in addition to just the trend from one to the other also having that insight as a child that you talked about when you saw the whitley streber cover what other aspects of this phenomena kind of led you down that path besides those two so facial structure and the insight you had as a child what else kind of leads you into that path Yeah, it's a great question. You know, a big stumbling block for a lot of people is the distance between and among various star systems. We now know there's tons of planets surrounding various stars throughout our galaxy. When I was a kid, we didn't. We didn't even know about one planet. But since through Kepler, NASA missions, we've found all kinds of planets. So we know they're out there. But the question is the distance, you know, and I'd like to be very clear with this. It's not that they can't travel those distances. These craft clearly move very fast. We talked about this at the start of the show. You and I both saw something just choom, zip across the sky, you extrapolate that out into and beyond our solar system. And yeah, they can clearly travel amongst the stars. For me, the issue is twofold. One, we wouldn't expect another civilization on a different planet around a different star 
with a different distance from the star. Possibly it's a binary star system with different atmosphere, uh, chemical composition, a different coding system. That's probably nothing like DNA. They could be silicone based rather than carbon based. There's just all these other variables that would make it almost impossible to have these extraterrestrials completely separate than us with a separate evolutionary trajectory that happen to look and act so much like us and that can breathe our air and speak our languages and have sex with us. I mean, that takes the right parts to even do that, you know, and they do that and have been for some time. So yeah, there's the issue of the separate evolutionary trajectories. And then the distance thing is important because it's not about the distance, but the speed at which they travel in doing so, there would be a time dilation effect. So you would have mm -hmm. time slow within that craft. So you go out, you know, on this voyage across the galaxy to visit this other population. And how do you even find them is another question. You know, unless they're just zipping from star to star, which would take forever, given the, the billions of stars within our galaxy alone. But they happen to find one, say, on the other side of the, the galaxy. They travel there in ship time. It only takes about 22 years for a round trip voyage from one side of the galaxy back at near the speed of light. But back on Earth, about 100,000 years have passed. So how do you circle that square? You know, it's not just about getting home to your planet, but you want to get home to your time where your family lived and your friends lived. You don't want to come back to just desolation and post-apocalyptic rubble. So I think even if we or they do become interstellar, you're going to have to have a time travel component associated with that because you're not just talking about getting back home in space, but also time. And then the other thing is just the, the craft Yeah, themselves. back home to space time, the same space yeah, time. Yeah, back home to space time. And clearly there's a lot we don't understand about time. We know it's an emergent phenomenon. We don't yet know what that fundamental thing is that emerges from. Some would argue space is also on that spectrum. And when we do, yeah, we may find that we're, we're thinking about it all wrong. You know, it's, it's not traveling across this landscape of space-time. It's just, you know, moving out in this four-dimensional block of sorts that we can't even conceptualize. Yeah, it. Or it could be space-time has wave-like <laughs> properties. And if you manipulate those wave-like properties, you can compress what's ahead of you and expand mm -hmm. what's behind you. And yeah, and doing that most that, likely is an aspect a time, of it. Yeah, but there's a time component regardless mm -hmm. right if you do that you have to warp. i mean you're not just warping space you're warping space time so yeah exactly the alcubierre machine you'd have to fix that too but let me, let me mention this one other thing is that the other thing that kind of drew me down this path is the technology itself so we have this expression in bio biology that form follows function and you can see like for you know we're talking about our teeth and our eyes we can see that the form of these help focus light that then registers our visual space teeth help us masticate food so we can swallow it these craft seem to have a form that's consistent with the function of bending and warping space-time and then the fact that that's described in so many different cases and i highlight a number of those in my second book indicates that there's something to pay attention to there that this isn't just a spacecraft but it's a space-time craft that it's also warping space-time. And if they're able to do that locally, there's a good chance they can move through global space-time as well. Okay, so I'm going to take a quick detour, but I have to ask you this question. So Jim Semivan, retired CIA operator or operations guy, recommended your book. Why is that? Why is the CIA? When did he do that? To to you or you heard him no, say no, no, that? No, 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 no. It, it was on an interview. Uh, I want to say, where did I see this interview? I'd have to review it, but I would say in the last two years easily. But he recommended which one? My the first name. one. Identify uh, no extra extra tempestual tempura, model. Temp yeah, tempura, Are you sure it was model. Jim Semivan or or 100%. John I Ramirez? I'm certain it was Jim Semivan. Oh, that's funny because uh, John Ramirez has been holding it up and talking about it during interviews too, and he's ex CIA as well. And Semivan was more senior for sure. Yeah, definitely. So, and you know, if we want to go down that little rabbit hole of inquest, yes. since the book came out, Hal Putoff has been mentioning it to people as a must read. In fact, 
I got invited to give a talk at the 2019 MUFON International Symposium in Irvine, California. And the director of MUFON who invited me was like, you know, how put off recommended your book. That's actually why I'm calling you. And I had no idea who that was. So I'm like Googling how put off is he's talking to me. And I'm like, this guy sounds interesting. And obviously, you know, he has his finger in every dike throughout the history of everything abnormal. So yeah, uh, and, and others have told me the same thing. Jesse Michaels, who has uh, American Alchemy and numerous others. So, yeah, I, I would, you know, turn that question around and say, why do you think ex-CIA officers and people like Hal Putoff are recommending it? I could give you two completely divergent answers. <laughs> I'd like to hear them. Like, yeah. So and it depends on where you stand with where these guys are coming from. So Hal put off for the audience that have been sleeping under a rock. He was associated with SRI from the very beginning. So the Stanford Research Institute, all the way back into the 70s with the original remote viewing program, which has protocols that enable a viewer to see any place in space and time. Right. So they've used remote viewing for predictive work. It's you know a little bit less accurate because there's a, a you, for any number of reasons, it could just be the nature of our physical reality. It runs on probability distributions in the future, as opposed to a set path of time, which makes it difficult to predict. Yeah. But as long as they have feedback, that's the main thing is the re these remote viewers want feedback in order to validate or dismiss what they had predicted. And, and some might argue. And you don't get feedback um, in the future, right? Well, you do eventually. And, and what's interesting is in Time Loops by Eric Wargo, he says that this isn't remote viewing, it's precognition. So they want that feedback because they're actually sending that information back from the future to themselves in the past to make these predictions that they then, that, that sorry, that goes down a whole nother rabbit hole, but it is an interesting argument. Yeah, it's, argument it's, it's called there. retro causation. Yeah, exactly. Right. Sorry. And yeah. Yeah. And, and by the way, you could use that for stock picking. You could say, mm -hmm. should we buy or will this stock be up or down tomorrow? If it's yep. up, I will smell chili. If it's down, I will smell. Give me something that smells just awful. I will smell raw the eggs. Rotting right? mice. Yep. Okay. That oddly specific. <laughs> that's oddly specific. And that's going to make my example even grosser, which is fine. Yeah, I'll probably. run with it. Okay. So what you, what you do is. When you're reviewing, you will smell one of those two things. And whatever you smell, that's buy or sell. Let's say rotting mice's sell. Mm -hmm. So the next day, when the stock is, if you smell rotting mice, when the stock is down, you have to go out and find a rotting mouse and smell it in smell order it. to make that retro causation. Yeah. And if work. you do it enough, your your brain starts to pick up on those patterns and it becomes reliable. And, and that's what these guys are doing with remote viewing. More important, your subconscious, which is smarter than yeah, your absolutely conscious. Yeah, because that's what they're following. If if their consciousness comes into that flow state at all, it screws them up and they have to start over. They take a break. So yeah, it's it's moving past the subconscious. That's a good point. Okay, or so past back the conscious, I mean, my bad. All right, so moving back from the rabbit hole, more recently, Hal Putoff authored a paper called Ultra Terrestrials, right? Which, uh, who knows what that means? It could imply future humans. It could imply the remnants of a lost civilization that are just living underground and kind of helping, you know, kind of the Atlantean thesis, if you want to say that way, or just a species that's just far more evolved than than we are that's completely different who knows that being said so either he is completely tapped in to all this and it lies to the truth or you can take the conspiracist theory which is that these folks are the purveyor of misinformation and disinformation so either you're spot on or they're using you as a way to distract and like i said it's binary and i don't have any information to know which one it is. However, I do find it interesting that they have identified you as a must-read. Or, again, it could be in the middle, where they don't know what this phenomena is, and your work is the best possible example of a future human hypothesis, which I, I think is true regardless of which one of the three options that I mentioned. 
Anyway, yeah. I don't know. Well, what, do you, I mean, what do you make of all that word salad? Well, you covered all of the you. possibilities with the binary and then the gray area in the middle there. So, well, I have I have a big head, so I am like <laughs> ultra designed for analytical thought. Yeah. And, uh, no, I agree. I, I, I think I've it's... had something similar happen to me in a completely different context. I'll, I'll be very quick about it. Yeah, go for so, it. So, I did my master's thesis on Iran's nuclear program and how to stop it, basically. And not necessarily how to stop it. That's one option, but or how to live with it if you decide not to try to stop it. Mm. And my thesis advisor became Obama's Secretary of Defense. But before all that happened, I kind of did this master's thesis. And at the school that I got my master's degree, it wasn't a traditional master's thesis. You had to pick a problem, you had to pick a client, and you had to solve the problem, right? From a policy like perspective. Yeah. That's and very my client functional. was yeah, yeah, which is which is pretty funny. So my thesis advisor, I, I want to make this interview about you, so I'm trying to be as fast. Oh, as Oh no, this is this is relevant and interesting. So I had to come up with a problem I wanted to solve, and my recommendation was for Iran. He's like, "That's good. I want you to work on that." And then I had to pick a client. So the first client, and this is back in 2005, maybe, mm. and I said I'd like Senator Biden to be my client. And he's like, he just looked at me like I had a, I would use something cruder, but for, since people are watching this, it was, he looked at me like I had a unicorn horn coming out of my forehead. And he's just like, Senator Biden, like, yeah. why? And I'm like, well, he was my Senator in, you know, when I'd grown up, I grew up in Delaware. He's just like, okay. He's like, I can get you Senator Biden, but how about like Javier Solana, like at NATO or Nicholas Burns, who was number three at the state department. I'm like, I'll go with Nicholas Burns. I'll go with your recommendation. <laughs> and so anyway, I did this master's thesis and I have a friend who you know ran in intelligence circles. He was a kind of military intelligence guy, you know, kind of did reserve work, whatever. And he said, I asked various agencies for good open source work on this problem. And he said every three-letter agency that he corresponded with sent them a copy of my master's thesis. Oh, cool. So anyway, that this sort of stuff tends to happen for good reasons, too. So my yeah. guess is that I, I think Hal Putoff is, is, again, I'm completely speculating. I think he's in this category where he's read in enough to know 85% of what's going on. But there's a 15% that he's always been trying to get at yeah, that he's that. been denied. And I think and, Kit And if you look at his ultra-terrestrials paper, it's, it yeah. seems to indicate such, that there's these ideas. These are the ones with merit. You know, there's other ideas too. But let's focus on these and then jettison the ones as more evidence becomes available until we're left with the one that is ultimately it. And I don't think an author would use that method unless they were if they already knew everything they would probably right. write it in a way that's like let's start with this this is the ball that we have and just toss out what we learn doesn't make sense yeah as far as jim semivan who was part of to the stars wasn't he in the initial stages which which explains the link with how put off and yeah and then john ramirez I think a big part of his, like I'm, I was on a panel with him and met him and talked with him a little bit in Phoenix last year at a, a conference. I, I presented that in October and I sent him a copy of my two books. And I think it dovetails with the fact that human DNA, as he often states, was found in the bodies of those recovered from the Roswell crash. So naturally, that's going to lead to questions. Why? You know, is it us? Possibly. Is it something we created from our own DNA to serve a specific purpose, almost like a, a human biologically engineered drone or AI of some sort? I think that's definitely a possibility and probably a part of the equation as well, especially when you're talking about things that can potentially crash. You know, why send well, here's, your own here's a crazier tissue theory. back there? Here's a crazier theory, and I'm not wedded to it. I'm literally just uh, throwing this out there. Uh, and I think Gary Nolan kind of alluded to something like this. So it's not like I'm coming up with this idea on my own. And I'm not saying he's at the salt conference. Oh, I don't, I I don't, I don't know. I, yeah. So it could be that let's take your view that something would have evolved completely differently on a different world. 
that it would be so alien to us that we wouldn't even be able to comprehend it. So imagine mm. that some organism like that tried to communicate with us and the only way, and it could be so strange that maybe it's a four-dimensional organism that is trying to project itself into a three-dimensional reality where we are, if you don't. Yeah. That was that show time. with uh, Amy Adams. That was the whole premise of that movie. Yeah. There was something with, yeah, time. It was uh, the name of it. Arthur, oh, time was, was the main thing. Yeah, time like the way that they saw time was completely alien to us. But yeah, what's the name of it? Arrival. That's what it was. Arrival. And and it was Very based good. on the guy's. I can't remember his first name. There's a science fiction author who Arthur writes C. short Clark? stories. It's not Arthur C. Clarke. It's something Chang. His last name's Chang. But he mm-hmm. rarely writes. But when he does write, he writes these short stories that are extremely deep. And that was what that movie was based on. Hmm, that's but, cool. I didn't know. But imagine, just step all the way back, let's say it's a four or higher dimensional organism projecting itself into three-dimensional space. In order to communicate with us, it would have to engineer, perhaps, it engineered something using human DNA so that it could relate to us. Because there's a whole, we're going down rabbit hole after rabbit hole, aren't we? Good God. Well, I mean, saw- it's it's interesting and it's possible it just adds extra assumptions it adds extra levels of assumptions to this you know and like i always say i try to stick with the parsimonious explanation that we're here we know we're here occam's razor yeah but that doesn't mean it's you know it has to be the simplest explanation there can be a lot of other things involved it's just once you start interjecting those extra assumptions it, it convolutes the model slightly or it could very be well all could be of the, the above. Case too. It could be all the above too. Who knows? Yeah, right. And most likely um, is. You know, there's probably a lot of different things going on. Okay, so using this feedback mechanism that you talked about with remote viewing, <clears throat> what sorts of evidence are you looking at prospectively? Like, what would we start to see going forward in order to help validate your hypothesis? That's a good question. I, I mean, well, that's what's cool about the idea is that if it is us, we'll inevitably just get there. Yeah. We'll start to become them. We'll start to have the technology. If we're reverse engineering time machines from the future, we're going to have that technology and be the ones doing it because we'll start using it. But I don't think it's going to take, you know, 50, 60,000 years, the time it might take for us to develop those great alien craniofacial traits, I think at whatever point they want us to know, so that we can start interacting more broadly in an intertemporal capacity, which I end both of my first two books talking about, then it's up to them. And I think that's exactly what's happening right now is that they initiated this plan. They're the ones Mm -hmm. that gave a deadline that you mentioned earlier, a date that we're trying to work up to where they're going to say, yo, we're here. We've been here for tens of thousands of years. It's been us the whole time. A lot of people are pissed off by that. They're like, no, I want it to be space aliens. And they've been fighting me since the beginning. I'm like, I don't I just want to know the truth, right? Yeah, I just want to know the truth. Any possible things, right. Well, what's funny is I'll see this progression with people a fellow Sean, he might spell his name differently. I can't remember his last name for some reason, but he was on a podcast into the expanse, expanding the universe, something like that. Guy's got a really sweet, twisty mustache, lives in Lyon, France. But he was on that Tic Tac ship. He saw the Tic Tac and everything. I don't know why I can never. Oh, remember Sean, Sean Cahill. Sean Cahill. Yeah, that's it. But Naval he described guy. his whole transition too on this podcast. The guy sent it to me. Because he thought it was funny. I thought it was funny where he's like, you know, at first I had beef with Dr. Masters and his hypothesis. And then I started thinking about it. And then he goes through like all the things that, that you and I have been talking about here in the in both my books. And then he's like, and now, you know, I think it's, it might be right. Or it's definitely, you know, something we should consider something like that. And I'll see all these people on Twitter, too. Where they'll be like, no, that can't be right. And then they read the books and they're like, yeah, it makes a solid case for for that as a possibility. So I think, you know, it's certainly probably a lot of different things, but I do think a big chunk of it is this. And in the future, as we move toward that, I think it'll just become obvious. You know, we're going through these stages where at first something's batshit crazy and then, you know, it becomes controversial but talked about and then the next stage is well yeah that was obvious we knew that the whole time and i don't think we're far from that i think it's innately going to happen 
as we move past this question of are they real, which unfortunately we've been stuck on for a very, very long time. It's extremely frustrating <laughs> to people. Like there, there, there's definitely something out there that has non-human characteristics. That doesn't mean it's non-human. Imagine yeah. I could take your hypothesis and maybe there had been sort of some genetic crossbreeding from others. Like who knows, right? Like Sure. Absolutely. My it's guess convenient. is- It's convenient for them because the narrative can then be dismissed. If it is human and you're calling it non-human, then people at the Air Force, people at NASA could be like, oh, no, we don't have any evidence of non-human craft because they know they're human. So there's a kind of a semantics thing there, too. Yeah. So why don't we stop here? Because we definitely need to get to the the disclosure moment. But I think think that's what we're talking about. They seem to have blended seamlessly there. That's what we're in the middle of right now is that that question about, you know, what's happening now? Where are we in this process? And and like, you know, I was just saying, I do think we're moving past beyond that question of are they real to who are they? What are they? When are they coming from? What are they doing here? What's their intent? Are they friend versus foe? And I don't think it's up to any of these governments, you know, circle back to where we started this show. I think it's up to them. They're leading this charge, whether they're, you know, time travelers or extraterrestrials or whatever. I think it's that they're behind the wheel right now. And a lot of people are struggling to catch up. Yeah. So let's stop here. And then we're going to discuss this exact topic in the next episode. So I think everybody should buy your books immediately. They're going to be in the links below. And I think the hypothesis is definitely something that is certainly one of the possibilities. So thank you again, my friend. Thank you. Yeah. I look forward to continuing this conversation. If you enjoyed this video, please click on like subscribe and the notification button so that you're alerted anytime I post something new. 